Okay, we're in Luke chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1, it begins with the words, at that time, or meanwhile, or during this time. So it connects to chapter 11. And as we said, chapter 11 records the climax of when the religious leaders rejected Christ. We remember he was invited into the house of a Pharisee and Jesus proclaimed six woes over the Pharisees and the lawyers. We can pick up the last couple of verses of chapter 11. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him. Uh, They didn't appreciate Uh, how he had addressed them. They didn't appreciate being exposed and confronted and having their religious masks ripped off. They didn't appreciate the fact that he addressed their hypocrisy. And that's one thing about hypocrisy. It doesn't like to be brought into the light. It likes to remain hidden. And they had their external system of religion their traditions, their works, they had the praise and the honor of men. Jesus said of them also in Matthew 23, he says that they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do are to be seen by men. And as chapter 11 continues, now Jesus is teaching his disciples. Remember, these these disciples, this band of men, fishermen, etc., will become the apostles. They will become the teachers and the leaders of the church. So Jesus wants to warn them, particularly in light of what's just happened with the Pharisees, the hypocrisy, the legalism, the burdens that are laid on men. He wants his disciples to see and understand as they go forward into the church age and into ministry. So this is where we pick up at the first verse. At that time, a numerable number of people are gathered. He began to say to his disciples, and here it is, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware the leaven or the yeast and this is a good illustration or, or you know, analogy uh, that for leaven or yeast will permeate. It will, it will corrupt. A little leaven will corrupt or affect or change or sour the whole lump. It's often used in the scriptures to speak of evil or sin. Just a little will corrupt the whole. And here Jesus uses leaven to speak of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Now, the disciples didn't always understand uh, Jesus' parables and, and etc. There was another time in Matthew 16, remember, when he used the same term and they said, what is he saying? Did we forget to bring the bread? And Jesus is like, no, I'm not talking about the bread. I'm talking about the, the leaven of the teaching of the Pharisees. And it says, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but the doctrine or the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So in this passage, he's speaking about the hypocrisy. In that passage, he's speaking about the teaching. And he uses leaven to illustrate both. That a little leaven of false teaching or a little leaven of hypocrisy, be careful, beware, 
because it can leaven all. It will affect all. The teaching of the Pharisees, the external display, which was in contradiction to that which was on the inside. They would put people under a yoke that they could not bear, and yet then themselves were also hypocrites in their hearts. And hypocrisy, of course, is, is to act or to play the part. So there's some dangers for that with all of us, right? And this serves well to, to speak to all of our hearts. It's a danger, certainly, for conservative uh, theological Bible-teaching churches. We are careful that we are not just left with the form and the doctrine and the theology, and we have lost the spiritual life. May God always search our hearts, that we are living in grace and transparency and humility before him. We don't want to become legalists for our own Christian life or for others. So the, the emphasis with the Pharisees is how you live, but without the grace to live it. And this can happen in a believer's life. I'm sure you've all tasted it. I have on my journey when you suddenly realize that you need to get back with the Lord and get right with God and make sure that, oh, I want to be living in grace. I want to be spirit-filled. And God and the Holy, His Holy Spirit will be faithful to convict us of such times. Second Timothy 3.5, it speaks of those who had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. So the church, as we know in history, is often accused of hypocrisy and we're sad to say in certain cases, rightly so. We know that there have been great cases in the religious institutions and even in evangelical Christianity, etc., of a great fall and how that affects and hurts many people. We understand that. But hypocrisy is also much more subtle than that. But when we realize and when we admit as believers, we don't hit every target. I don't think that there is anyone here without sin who is perfect. Anyone? Don't raise your hand. We don't want to know. We all need mercy. It's a part of the Christian life. But when we admit that, that's not hypocrisy. That's being honest and being real. We acknowledge the fact that we are sinners and we fall and we fail. Jesus said, if anyone says he is without sin, he makes God a liar. We recognize we are sinners, and on our journey, we have daily grace and daily mercy, and we're thankful for it. But a little hypocrisy affects the whole lump, like Phariseeism. They were playing the part. They were pretending. It's something that can spread like a cancer. Same as false teaching. Oh, the discerning ear and the discerning heart is so important to examine the scriptures and make sure that these things are so. With everything we hear here, and if we listen on the internet or whatever it might be, we need to be so discerning in what we are hearing because a little leaven leavens the whole. So when you're in a service, when you hear a message, there should be edification there. There should be encouragement. There should be a strengthening. That's not to say sometimes the Holy Spirit might not put his finger right on us, and that conviction is healthy. 
but also I shouldn't leave condemned or driven or striving or feel that I'm so inadequate. I should be encouraged through the gospel and the grace of God. And if not, that, is, uh, that should be considered. Remember in Acts chapter 15, remember Paul was on his missionary journey by now. He just finished his second missionary journey. And on their journey, they were followed by, by these Pharisees or legalists or Judaizers, as they were called. And Paul and his team were preaching and teaching grace and planting churches and people were being saved and liberated. And the Pharisees and the Judaizers would follow along and add the law. And they would say, oh, yes, what Paul says, sure, Jesus and grace, yeah, yeah, but you have to keep the law. Otherwise, you will not be saved. And Paul and Barnabas, rightly so, got back in their face and had, there was real contention about that. We read in Acts 15.1, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to preach that gospel. Try it. Go out in the streets and speak to someone. Listen, unless you're circumcised and you keep the law, you cannot be saved. But Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot be saved. That's different. These Pharisees, they oppose Jesus and they oppose Paul and they are alive and well today. Also, they would look to change the gospel into something else. But we know that this leads into what's called the Jerusalem Council, where Peter stands up in verse 10 and says, listen, let's be honest. We couldn't keep the law. Our fathers couldn't keep the law. So why would we put that burden on our brothers, on the Gentile disciples? Verse 11, for we believe it is by grace. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes in that context to the Galatian believers, for many of them were turning back to the law. He said in 1.6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him who has called you to grace to another gospel, which is not another gospel of the same kind, but it is different. I'll read to you what he says to them, Galatians 5.1. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You hear that? The yoke of bondage. This is not the yoke that Jesus spoke about, the yoke that is easy, that his burden is light. This is the yoke of the law that no man can bear. And do not be entangled again with that yoke. For if you come under the law or you are legalistic, you bear a yoke that really you were not made for. And it does not set you free, but it makes you a captive. Indeed, Paul, I, I Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, and that phrase, by the way, just doesn't mean that act, but it means the coming under the entire law, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. He goes on in verse 7. 
follow with me, he says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Here's the picture. The Galatians, they heard the gospel. They believed. They were saved. They were affected. They were changed. They could sense the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in their life. They could see the grace of God setting them free. But then the Judaizers came and they added a little leaven and it affected them. Their motivation changed. Their their hearts were troubled. They would question their very salvation and they would enter into a works program. So Paul says, listen, you ran well. When you were living under grace, you ran so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth, the truth of the gospel? He goes on in verse 8, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Remember back in Acts 13, at the beginning of the missionary journey, they persuaded them to what? Continue in grace. But this is a different persuasion. Not persuading them to continue in grace, but persuading them to live according to works and legalism. And he says, this does not come from him who calls you. That also looks back to Galatians 1.6. I marvel you are so soon removed from him who calls you to grace. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. And here it is, verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul says in Romans 11.6, in other words, it's either all grace or it's all works. I'll read you the verse, in fact. I have it here. If it's by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So there's a warning here that Jesus lays to his disciples. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware their teaching, which leads to hypocrisy. We said last week that when we live under the law, it creates a double standard because I I can't attain to it and I am trying to measure up to something that I can't and therefore a double standard is created. But when you live in grace and we're on a journey and we're growing and God help us all, but when we live in grace, we can afford transparency. When we live in grace, grace actually, what you see is what you get. And I am not pretending to be something that I'm not. I'm not trying to live up to something that I can't, but I am just yielded to God and trusting him for his growth and blessing and victory in my life. So let's go back to Luke chapter 12. He says, after he addresses their hypocrisy, he says, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. In other words, that which is now covered or hidden or unknown will be uncovered and revealed and known. People might not know, but God knows. Galatians 6, 9 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So God has a way of exposing hypocrisy. And I say that with a bit of fear and trembling myself. Don't worry. God has a a way of exposing that, of proving us. And often it will happen in our lives. And when we look back, we're thankful for it. But if not in this life, certainly in that final day. 
Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. There will be a day where we will stand before God. Now, let's just make a clear declaration here, gospel truth. We are saved by grace through faith. Your salvation is sure. That's not what's in question here. We have passed from death to life. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are saved for sure. However, our lives will be evaluated on that day. What we have done in our life and in our body, we are accountable before God. And you say, oh boy, that, that, that sends shivers up my spine. And so it should, right? What it says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will, bring both, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the motives of the heart. So it's not what you do, it's why you do it. It's not what the external is or how we live before men or what man sees. It's the motive of the heart which will be brought to the light. This is why in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that which he has done, whether it is good or bad. Again, this isn't a salvation question. This judgment seat, or the Greek word bema, is like the reward seat in the Olympic Games, where you would have the gold, silver, bronze, etc. is a place of reward. But there will be loss at the judgment seat or at the bema seat of Christ. And everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which is good or bad. Not just in the moral sense, but in the truest sense that only God can discern in the heart and motive of men for what we might look at and say, oh, that is good, or we might look at that and say, that is bad, God's reading on that might be slightly different. It's not always what you see. So he goes on in chapter 3, and again, he's speaking of this principle of rewards for the believer. Again, salvation is not in question. So let me read, let's read together in chapter 3, He says, no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, that is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, now what he does here, he takes an analogy of things that would be be judged or proven by a fire, and that which would last the fire pictures rewards, and that which is burned up means that you lose the reward. Everyone understand that? So it's an analogy he's using. He says that our works will pass through the fire. That which is good remains and gets a reward, and that which is burned up, you have a loss. You will not be condemned. You not lose your salvation. But we, you know the Bible speaks a lot about rewards, right? So let's read on. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, that's the good works, that we pass that through the fire, and that's refined, and wood, hay, and stubble, and that is burned up. So verse 13, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now, you might say, well, it sounds, are you sure this isn't my salvation? Are you sure I can't lose my salvation, this beamer seat? Well, let's read the next verses together. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. So it's clear, not a salvation question. It's about rewards. But there will be a loss of reward at the Bema seat. We'll be honored and rewarded in some sense, but also there will be a loss. Now, we don't know all the details of that day, but our demerit on that day will be crystal clear. The grace of God towards us will be clearer on that day than any other day. We will understand the justice of God and we will know that no man has a word to speak in contest, in contest to that. God is fair and reasonable and just. But every knee will certainly bow and every tongue will confess on that day. And every believer will realize, wait a minute, okay, I lost rewards, but I am saved. What unspeakable grace. And what's astounding is that it speaks about that there will be rewards. If it wasn't enough that I was just saved, and that will be enough. But it says here, we, he, that which endures, he will receive a reward. Wow. With such a clear sense of what we do not deserve will be reward. We will be humbled and thankful and filled with praise. If he would ever say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been a good steward in any measure. We will be humbled and thankful for all eternity, for sure. Let's go back to Luke 12. And I say to you, my friends, do not be unhear my friends. So he's speaking, the crowd, the multitude, he's speaking to his disciples. And when he says, I say to you, it's an important statement of truth. Listen, pay attention to what I'm going to say to you. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more than they can do. Now, the disciples are going to go into public ministry and they were going to have to deal with the Pharisees and the, and the, the, the legalists and the Judaizers. And he was saying, and they would be persecuted. In fact, we know the disciples were martyred for their ministry and for their faith, as have so many Christians throughout church history. And he says to them, listen, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, and that's all they can do. It might not sound very comforting. Someone comes up and says, don't worry, the worst they can do is kill you. <laughs> but then you'll be with the Lord. It may cost it may be a high price as it was for the disciples, but he's saying, do not fear the Pharisees, but fear God. Again, this goes back to the point about who we live before. Do we live before men, like the Pharisees did in their hypocrisy, in their religion, in their external form, or do we live before God? And this is what he's saying. Don't fear men. Don't let your ministry be hindered or regulated or minimized because of your fear of men. But rather fear God and live before him. And then Jesus quickly comforts them and speaks words of assurance. Verse 6, 
Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's easier for some than others. <laughs> then he says, do not fear, therefore. So first he says, fear, fear God. But here he says, do not fear, and it's, it's different. Do not fear or be anxious or troubled in your life. Do not fear. You are more you are of more value than any of the sparrows. Oh, what incredibly comforting words as Jesus would turn to his disciples as he has just been rejected, as he has just exposed the Pharisees, as he's just heading to the cross, as he's just about to hand the baton on to his disciples. He says, listen, don't live before men, live before God. Don't fear men, but fear God. And remember, God values you so greatly, so highly. He is with you. He will not forsake you. You are precious to him. Does he not know and value these sparrows? How much more will he value, uh, does he value you? The very hairs of your head are numbered. You are known. You are intimately known. He knows your thoughts and your lives and your struggles and your hearts. He says, also I say to you, and this is that phrase again, Focus on the truth of these words, whoever confesses me before men. And that confession, of course, is speaking about agreeing about who he is and what he has done, confessing that Jesus is Lord, he is the Messiah, he is the Savior. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and has, God has raised him from the dead, you are saved. Whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, will also confess before the angels of God. And perhaps it seems that that is an allusion to the, that, that final day, the Bema Seat Judgment Day, where there will be honor and reward, and also the loss of rewards in some measure. Verse 9, but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, this is one of those verses, if you pluck it out of context, you get someone saying, Pastor, I, I, I feel like I denied the Lord one time. You know, someone said to me, you know, are you a Christian? And I shied away from it. Oh, my, you know, that's not what it means. You have to look at it in the context. To confess who he is, to deny who... Peter denied the Lord and he became an apostle. It's not speaking about a moment of weakness. It's not speaking about a struggle in your life. It's about your, the worldview that you are firmly rooted in, that you have chosen in your pride to reject who Jesus is. He who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of the Lord. Verse 10. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Another one of those verses, if you pluck it out of context, people get all ruffled about this. Oh, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? That's not forgivable. But again, we have to study the scriptures in context. If you take the text out of context, you are left with con. Right? Context is important. What is the context? The previous chapter, he just performed the final miracle showing that he is the Messiah, casting out a dumb demon, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, says he does this by the power of the devil. 
So in the face of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to who Jesus was, the Messiah, they rejected him and said he does it by the power of the devil. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That, for that generation, that physical generation, in the face of the Messiah being there in their midst, was something that would not be forgiven to that generation. That doesn't mean to say an individual couldn't recognize it and before the, beforehand believe in Jesus, but in AD 70, judgment certainly came upon that generation <coughs> with the destruction of Jerusalem. So... And in Mark 3's chapter, it says, right after this phrase, it says, because they said he has an unclean spirit. So clearly, it looks back to when they recognized, when they said Jesus does this by the devil and not by, not by the Spirit of God. So, verse 11, we'll close out with these last two verses here. Verse 11. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and the authorities, and it doesn't say if, it says when. These poor disciples, Jesus was preparing them. When you are brought before the synagogue, we look in the book of Acts and we see as soon as you get to chapter you know, four and on, you start seeing this persecution and the first martyr, etc. They were brought before the magistrates and the Sanhedrin, etc. He says, do not worry about how or what you will answer or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And again, these were deeply encouraging words for the disciple in this moment as they look forward and certainly when they came to that place. For Jesus had given them the promise that in that hour of your persecution, the Holy Spirit will be with you and give you the words. So we read in the book of Acts as Jesus, as Peter was before the Sanhedrin, it says, and Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit said, and that's exactly what Jesus was saying here, in that hour he was given the words. So Jesus is encouraging them for their ministry. And he, he, he highlights one and he looks to the other. And he says, oh, listen, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy and their false teaching. And that warning should echo all through church history and in our own very hearts. We don't want to play religious games. We don't just want to have a form of godliness, but may we go before the throne each day and ask for a refreshing and a quickening and to be spirit-filled and say, Lord, if there's any familiarity in my life, will you chase it away? If there's any, any sin or games or that I am, oh, please show me and lead me in the way everlasting and God will be faithful to do that, to keep us in the way of his grace. So let's pray together. Father, we do just take this to heart this morning. And we thank you for your spirit in us, in each one as born-again believers, that your spirit is in us, and you will, you will show us, you will reveal to us, you will help us. You are not against us, but you are for us. You are in us. Oh, and your desire for us to be free, to be victorious, to be, to be spirit-filled, to have your freedom and joy and peace, oh, you desire that for us on a daily basis. And we thank you for the gospel of grace, for the new covenant, for the amazing gifts that have been given to us. And we pray in this age that we live in, in this, in this 
age where the spirit of the Antichrist is, is seen, where there is such a compromise and, and uh, in this post-Christian era, such, such a spirit that is against the things and the person of God. Oh, give us discernment, discerning ears and hearts to walk and stand in the truth without compromise, but give us faith and direction and clarity, we pray together, personally, individually, as a church. Perhaps there's one here this morning or listening online, you're not sure of your salvation. Perhaps you have, you have thought about Jesus in certain terms. Perhaps you've never really heard the gospel before. Well, here it is. Jesus is the Savior, and he came to seek and save that, those who are lost. And if you just look to him in a moment of faith this morning, confess him in your heart that he is the Savior, that he is the Lord. Ask him into your life. Say, Jesus, save me today, for I believe I cannot save myself, but save me by your grace through faith in Jesus' name. And if that's your prayer, you begin a journey of faith with him, follow him, seek him, continue with him, and he will bless and honor you. So, Father, we just ask for a blessing upon our hearts and minds and our church family together in Jesus' name. Amen.